we're gathered in your name and we're gathered because we believe that that's true, that in you we find real life, real truth. We find the way that we were made to live, the way that you created us, who you made us to be, and the life that you made us for. So open your words to us tonight and show us that and draw us deeper into you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Ella is going to read our text tonight, and then we'll get started. Matthew 6. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you, sweetie. I asked her to do that about four minutes ago. So, good job. That was a first. Um, all right. So we are in, t in the middle of the Lord's Prayer. If you were here last week, we got through the first half of it. And we're going to get through the second half. There's a good bit to cover here. It was, uh, it turns out, ambitious, at least for the way that I approach this, uh, to break it even into two weeks. But we're going to make it uh, tonight. So um, what I want to say before we get back into it tonight is this, what I want to remember, and I alluded to this last week, but I want to be really clear about it tonight uh, for my own memory and for clarity for all of us, and that is that we're not just analyzing some words of Jesus here. There's truth here. There's a lot of good stuff here, um, but this is not what we're, what we're into is not an effort to just break apart another set of words that Jesus said. This is Jesus teaching us to pray. And so whatever we talk about, and I think there is teaching here, I think he's shaping us and molding us and directing us in certain ways beyond just telling us, hey, pray. Um, I want us to keep that as the lens that uh, at the end of this, though I hope we have some new insight into Jesus and into the life that we live with him, we ought to be drawn into prayer more deeply than we are to pray with more intention and with more regularity, maybe, uh, than we do now, or at least, uh, if I can phrase that a little bit differently, at least be more consistently intentional about the way that we pray and intentional in following the teaching and the model and the instruction of Jesus about how we pray. Um, I think... Uh, we're praying in these words as we follow Jesus into them. We're praying a lot more than maybe we realize we are because God is shaping us through the prayer, but prayer itself matters. Uh, there's a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, who I read a lot, and somewhere along the way he did some kind of Q&A, and somebody's question was just, why pray? And his answer to that was, we pray because our life comes from God, and we yield it back in prayer. Prayer is a great antidote, antidote to the illusion that we're self-made. And I think that's part of what Jesus is doing here. He is reminding us who we are, why we're made, and 
inviting us to yield our lives back to God and curing us from that thing that afflicts all of us where we begin to believe in one way or another that we're self-made. When you hear that term self-made, I think most of us tend to hear uh, a sort of prideful, like, I can do everything myself. But no matter which way you spin on that spectrum, you still believe you're self-made. You may be prideful and think you can do everything yourself, and so you cease to remember that your provision, your life, everything you do and accomplish and have is from the Lord. Or you may be somebody who struggles a lot to think that you can you can do it, that you can get your life together, that you are um, forever sort of cursed to be controlled by the chaos of your circumstances. And you don't have that kind of confidence where you think, I'm a self-made person, but it's the same affliction. It's that sense that whatever I can muster up is the best that I will get. And this is a cure. These words, this kind of praying is a cure from that. So last week we went through this first part of the prayer, starting in verse 9, where Jesus says very directly, pray in this way. He's telling us how he wants us to pray. And if we we remember that he said that in light of these two things that he says in verse 6, when you go into your room, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret, and your father who sees in secret, who sees you even in the secret place, will reward you. And then a couple of sentences later, he said, do not be like them, and them were the Gentiles who felt like they had to sort of conjure up and convince their gods to listen to them and to do something for them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. If we remember that this is who Jesus has described God to be, the one who sees us in secret, and a Father who knows what we need, and that uh, is one of the reasons... We prayed this prayer tonight before communion, this prayer that if you grew up in an Anglican tradition, you would have heard it every single week before the Eucharist. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid. I see this as being birthed directly out of those words of Jesus, who says, God sees you in secret. He's the Father who knows what you need before you ask. And if if you grew up with a lot of sort of religious guilt, a phrase like this heading into worship might be shaming. It might seem like some sort of threat. God sees you in all of your dirty secrets, right? That's how some of us are probably programmed to hear this phrase. But I think what one of the gifts of praying the way that Jesus taught is seeing a prayer like this as a promise, and not as a threat, that the God of all creation, who does see even the worst of us, is also our Father, and He knows what we need. He knows our hearts and desires. He sees us in the secret, and that frees us because we can give up the game of trying to hide or position ourselves right and just enter prayer as Jesus entered prayer. So I think what Jesus is saying in part here. So since your father who sees in secret and since he knows what you need before you ask, pray in this way. And then he goes into this verse um, of our father in heaven. And uh, as I said last week, we tend to see this as just sort of a throwaway introduction or greeting in the prayer, but it's really the essence of what what he's guiding us to, to this ability to pray to God as a father in the way that he did. And uh, that's something that only Jesus 
can usher us into. And when we do that, we embrace our identity as part of the family. There is no space in which it makes sense, even in this most fundamental basic prayer that we have in the Christian faith given to us directly by Jesus, there is no space where it really makes sense to say, yes, I believe in God, or yes, God is my Father, but divorce ourselves from the identity that that, that puts us in. And, and I think it also means that we receive, that we've been brought into his family, and his family is not just me and him, his family is all of us. It is the church. And so when we pray this most basic prayer, we also embrace the church. Whether we like it or not, whether we realize it or not, we're saying that God is our Father. And so if He's my Father and He's your Father, it doesn't make sense to be part of the family and be separate from the family. And so there's an identity that we're embracing when we pray this. And then in the next verse, He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And just as in this place, just as He's reminding us that God is our Father. Now, that's not some future reality. He's also reminding us that we're to pray right now for who he is and what he intends to come true in the world. It's that simple. Uh, We're praying for the redemption of the world, and we're praying for our own redemption. We're praying for him to have freedom to be who he is and do what he's going to do in us and in the world around us. And when I stopped here last week... Uh, I talked a bit about the possibility that as we see this prayer in these ways, as we see this sort of notion that, that uh, he's inviting us into a new identity, a new family, a new mission, that we're joining him as members of his family, uh, there's the possibility um, that uh, we, we start to think that these words are for people that have it all together and that are, are, are already all in in their faith and they feel completely free to say, yes, I mean all of this. Uh, and what I said last week is that, well, I think this prayer is a sort of Godward movement. I think praying this is a, a step for us toward God. We're asking for all that he has to be true for us, in us, through us, around us, Um, And that means he's going to uproot some of what we already are and already have. We're not suggesting that we've got it all together by being willing to ask and willing to continue this, this sort of rehearsal and moving into what this prayer represents. So I think this prayer is given to us in part as an acknowledgement that we're not all the way there, but this is how we can. So pray this way. Continue to move with your words and your heart in that direction. Okay. So now this week we get into verse 11, which is give us this day our daily bread. And I think it's interesting that this part of the prayer comes where it does, because this is the kind of thing that most of us are inclined to start with in prayer. Most of us are, or or either start with, or even before we start, sort of be drawn into prayer for this reason, this coming to God with whatever we perceive in the moment to be our most pressing need. And the point here is not that you're not supposed to pray to God for whatever needs you have, real physical needs you have that are pressing. Clearly you are, because it's included in the prayer that Jesus taught us. But I think it matters that he's placed it where he's placed it, because Jesus says 
pray in this way, and then immediately takes us into who God is, who we are, and why we exist. All of that happens before we get to us asking for even our most basic needs to be met. And I think when we don't do this, when we do what, what comes most natural, which is start in prayer by what, whatever feels most motivating, most uh, to be my greatest need, uh, we, we enter into prayer with either this unfettered focus on the thing that we want from God, which is how some of us, me included, for sure, uh, start into prayer a lot of the time, or we come into prayer with the chaos of our lives, and what we're doing is we're sort of throwing all of that up in the air in this desperate hope that God will catch it and make some, make some sense of it. I think that's natural for, one of, for us to do one of those two things, to come with a very clear sense of, this is why I'm praying, I need this one thing, I'm desperate for this one thing from God, or I'm just kind of at my wit's end because I'm being crushed by the mess of my life or the mess of someone else's life next to me, and I'm just going to sort of desperately say, this is it, God, can you do something with it? But Jesus directs us, and there's not, again, it's not that we shouldn't take those things to God, but Jesus, I think his direction here is clear. Remember who God is, remember who you are, and remember what your life is about. There's a clarity that comes in praying that way. When, when, your kid, when you have kids and they're little, one of the most entertaining things that will happen in your home is listening to them pray. Um, and uh, when I, I remember when Ella in particular, sorry, honey, um, I didn't know you are going to be in here tonight, was little, um, she would pray. She had this way of praying that was sort of half phrases. Um, and so it would be a prayer like, thanks for the food. Mommy, get better. We get a puppy. Amen. <laughs> that was how she would pray. And it was funny, and there would be funny things mixed in with very sort of real pressing things about our life. Um, but there's a clarity there. There is a sort of uh, coming to God in a very sort of simple and clear way that I think we're invited to return to here instead of the chaos or the pressure that normally drives us into prayer. So remember who God is. Remember who you are. Remember why you're alive. Now, from that perspective, with your needs and wants in their rightful place, recognize that your Father, who knows what you need before you even ask, is the source of provision for even your most fundamental needs, even your next meal. He's the source of that. And the point of all of this, I think the point of teaching us to pray in this way, uh, isn't some sort of hyper-spiritualism that gets us so enlightened um, or so holy that we no longer care about our physical needs. And I, and I think it's important that this is here. Like I said, we're still asking for him to meet our physical needs. We're not trying to elevate ourselves into some sort of space of spiritual worship that's above any tangible needs or praying for anything for myself. Um, remember that we've just prayed not to be finally rescued from this broken world, which is what we feel a lot of the time, what we long for, but we've just prayed for the kingdom of God to come here and for what God really wants to become true in our space. 
God doesn't want you to starve. He doesn't want your needs, your physical needs, to go unmet. And so this is consistent with what we've already prayed. And after we pray for that, for his will to be done here, the very next place Jesus points us is food, is the meeting of our physical needs. He directs us to embrace God as the one who meets our needs and who reshapes, in some sense, our hunger and our desire. We're not asking, we're not, our sense of what we need, even our sense of what we need to eat, is not leading our interaction with God. What is leading our interaction with God is this reframing of who he is, this reminding of what we want him to do. Now, our needs are asked for in light of that. Um, And we don't come uh, into prayer. Some of this is just an acknowledgement of, of what I alluded to before. We don't come into even this prayer perfect, with our needs perfectly in line with who the Father is. We don't come in with a fully redeemed hunger. And so because we come as we are, because our hearts are open, because our desires are known, it's okay now to ask for bread. We see God's knowledge of the sort of anarchy of our desires and hungers as freedom. We come and we know he knows that we're all over the place in what we need. Now, let's remember who he is and be free to ask for what we need and, and expect that he wants to, this is part of his will, is to enter the disorder um, or of our lives or our sort of tendency to control our lives and take care of us and to assume his rightful place. So in this prayer, we're re-centered on who God is and why we're alive. And, and that, frankly, is going to burn, if we're really going through this in earnest, it's going to burn away a lot of the kinds of things that we ask for or that we don't ask for because we're sort of subtly convinced that we can just go on desiring and chasing on our own and not really ever bring God into it at all. This is going through and praying the way Jesus teaches us to is going to burn some of that stuff away. But we're reminded that we're God's and that he knows what we need and that everything, and I think this is a big part of of what happens in us in, in this space, everything that we don't actually need but we're afraid to let go of because we might need it or we think we need it or we know we'll be happier if we have it, we can release without fear of our lives being even a little less fulfilling because he's our father and his kingdom is going to come. We can trust his goodness to feed us spiritually and physically and provide everything we need. If we, what stands out to me about, about this very simple phrase in the prayer is that if we will let it, I think this frees us of chaos, of fear, of worry, and the tyranny of our circumstances. And this is, I, I, as I look at my own life, as I look at the struggles we have as a family, as I look at the reality of so many of our lives um, in our community and certainly beyond, I think this is the, the sort of um, authoritarian role that our circumstances play in our lives. Our, the, our schedules, our jobs, our kids and their schedules, whatever difficult things have come into our lives and sort of thrown them sideways, uh, those things 
assume a certain level of control. And then we start talking about, well, I can't really do anything about it. This is just what life is like. Or we can't do this. And suddenly we're, we're giving reasons for why the kingdom is not ordering our life. And it's a lot of stuff that, that we have said when we do that, well, this has control now and, and not this. And I think this prayer, if we will let it, will free us from that, no matter our circumstances or how difficult they are. I think the Lord's Prayer leads you out of that frenetic, out-of-control, disordered life where things that matter less are elbowing things that matter more out of the way that you actually spend your time and your money and your energy and your attention. And, and on the other hand, if chaos is not your thing, if it's not your problem, I think the Lord's Prayer also leads us out of a life where we have everything lined up just so to keep ourselves safe and comfortable. It reorders that according to the kingdom and according to God's will. This is not, this, this, this means that our prayers, our lives are not supposed to be, I'm just going to go on as I am with this occasional glance to the sky, believing God will give me what I need, no matter how crazy things are down here. Certainly that's true. But Jesus is calling us out of that approach to prayer and living into embracing, I'm a child of the Father who sees my needs and meets them so I can live with his kingdom as my clear agenda and not worry about the consequences. There will be consequences when you reorder, when you allow the kingdom to take the place of control that other things have had. There will be costs associated with that, but we don't have to fear the cost because our Father who knows what we need before we ask is going to take care of us. That's what we're being called into. I can live with the kingdom as my purpose and my identity without fear. And in the setting of those first two phrases of the prayer, we're now free to trust that our needs and even our desires, which are being shaped by the kingdom, will be fulfilled how and when God knows and God wants. Okay? Next phrase, forgive us our debts as we, have, as we also have forgiven our debtors. I'm probably going to circle back uh, in the future and talk about the way that Jesus both prays here and then afterwards speaks about forgiveness. But I, I want to say a few things about this. Uh, he talks about, Jesus talks about forgiveness multiple times and uh, in, in lots of different settings and through parables and through direct statements and instruction and here through prayer. But I think the, cl- the clearest and most compelling image when, we, when we're trying to get our heads around what we're praying for, um, when we ask for God to forgive us and what we can expect and then how that affects how we forgive people around us, I think the clearest image in Scripture of what it looks like when God answers this prayer, when he forgives our debts, is here in Luke 15 in the story of the prodigal son who we're told after going off and doing all the things that he did, came to his senses and said to himself, I shall get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I don't deserve to be called your son any longer. Make me like one of your hired hands. And he got up and went to his father while he, was a, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, and his heart was stirred with love and pity. He ran to him, hugged him tight, 
and kissed him. There's a lot that's significant here, but um, even especially then, running for a grown man was undignified. Uh, we still have, uh, th- th- there's a thing about kids, uh, a lot of kids, that they run everywhere, right? Um, it, it, I, I, this, one of the phrases I speak most often in this room is, if you're going to run, go outside. And that's so that you don't get mowed down by other people's children in this room, which still happens to somebody every week um, in this space. You just run everywhere. When, when, and, and as you get older, you stop running everywhere. Aiden used to run everywhere. Today, we got home after being out somewhere this early this morning, and the apartments where we've been living have a gate, which is a source of great uh, irritation to me. I lost my clicker to get me in the gate within the first three weeks of living there. So I had to use Amy's clicker to program a button in my 16-year-old car to get me in the gate. But then when I'm in her car and I don't have her clicker, it's just chaos. And somehow we got out without a clicker today and the gate was closed. And so we made Aiden walk in to go get the clicker. And we're sitting in the car. Sorry, son. Both of my kids get thrown under the bus today. But And he's just strolling to the apartment to get the clicker. So I honked at him, which he meant, knew meant, start running, please. As you get older, you quit running places. It feels undignified. You feel like uh, I'm silly if I'm running. And at, at almost 42, I feel really silly when I start running in front of people because I don't run unless I absolutely have to anymore. Um, So I have an image in my head of what it must look like when I start running. In this time and space, it was actually a thing. Grown men didn't run. It was considered undignified. And then running when your son had rejected his membership in the family and had disgraced and humiliated you as a father, that's beyond undignified. But that's the image that Jesus gives us of what it looks like when God answers this prayer, forgive us. He comes running to us. Forget about dignity. Forget about that image that we have of God as a hard, distant father. He's the father who comes running down the road to meet us. That's his response to your return to him with a desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. And Jesus says, pray in this way. Will you, God, will you run and meet me at the end of the road, forgiving me as I also run down the road? toward those who owe me some debt to forgive them and release them from it in the same way. This is what Jesus tells us to pray. N.T. Wright uh, says that forgiveness is richer and higher and harder and more shocking than we usually think. And he went on after that to write this, which is one of the most compelling things I've ever read about forgiveness. So I want to share it with you. He says this, In particular, having received God's forgiveness themselves, they were to practice it amongst themselves. He's talking about these early followers of Jesus. Not to do so would mean they hadn't grasped what was going on. As soon as someone in one of these Jesus cells refused to forgive a fellow member, he or she was saying, in effect, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. Failure to forgive one another wasn't a matter of failing to live up to a new bit of moral teaching. It was cutting off the branch you were sitting on. The only reason for being kingdom people, 
for being Jesus' people was that the forgiveness of sins was happening. So if you didn't live forgiveness, you were denying the very basis of your own new existence. Ouch. And glory, right? Because if, if we remember that God is our Father, that he knows what we need, and so one of the things we need is that kind of forgiveness. We need a Father that runs down the road to us instead of sit, sitting at a distance, making us earn our way back. He also knows that one of the things that we need is not just to be forgiven of my sin, but to live with the freedom and the security of being his kid that enables me to forgive others as he's forgiven me. And this is the thing that I think most often gets lost in our struggle to forgive other people, is that this is what we were made for. <laughs> and when we refuse to do it, we are keeping at arm's length part of God's goodness by holding on to something that we refuse to forgive. And, and that's not just about the person that we're not forgiving, it's about us. We no longer have to live in self-defense mode because we're living in the safety of the coming kingdom of God where not only can you forgive other people without fear, but all your needs are met. You can be free to forgive and not worry about defending yourself. God is meeting all of your needs. Just to be clear, and we'll, like I said, I, I, we'll, we'll come back into some of this about forgiveness, but this doesn't mean that we forgive in order when, when Jesus uses this phrase. It doesn't mean um, that we forgive in order to be forgiven, that we somehow earn God's forgiveness by forgiving other people. Uh, we'll get into that, but we forgive because we've been forgiven. It's changed who we are and how we live in the world. And it's also worth saying here, I think, that all talk of forgiveness requires a common understanding that sin is real and consequential. Otherwise, there would be no need for this kind of forgiveness. This image of a father running down the road isn't that compelling if our sin doesn't matter, if our brokenness is without consequence. This is not, this talk about forgiveness is not a cheap grace that just shrugs off our brokenness and says, well, no one is perfect. It's a deep grace that says we're capable of really wounding ourselves and each other with our brokenness, but God can heal us despite the radical consequences to our brokenness, and he can make us agents of his healing. So we enact in the world. We start as people who are forgiven, forgiving. We start enacting in the world what arrived in the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, the forgiveness of sin and the defeat of the slavery that comes with sin. Um, and I think this also, when, when we pray this out loud and when we live this way, it, it means that we're bearing witness in the world to this reality that unforgiveness, that a way of life that brands people by their errors and locks them up there is a lie. It's not just a, it is deeply personal, our own forgiveness and our forgiving people who are personally in our lives who have wounded us. But there's also a public element to this prayer and this way of life. And that is when we see unforgiveness and lack of grace in the world, we're the people who say, that's a lie. That's not the way humans are made to live. And we reject that sort of harshness. 
So I think it's worth asking ourselves a question. This isn't one of my discussion questions, although I could have saved myself some work. I just realized and made it one of our discussion questions. Um, but I think it's, it's worth asking what we're doing and saying in the world that, that causes people around us to stop and say, wait, that, that doesn't make sense because of forgiveness. What, what is happening that um, people are asking that question in a way that our only explanation is that everything for us has been reordered by a father who leaves dignity and punishment and harshness behind him to run down the road to meet the son who humiliated him. What are we doing? How are we living that, that provokes that kind of question that only has that answer? All right, verse 13 says in this translation, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Uh, I'm going to be brief here, but, but this, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I, I read a fair amount about this because the phrasing in translations on this, um, obviously most of us learn to pray, lead us not into temptation. Um, the phrasing on this translation to translation is there's a lot of difference. And I think that this is a be- probably a better translation than what we're used to praying, not because someone uh, necessarily messed up in previous translations as much. Trans- I don't want to get too far off here, but translating uh, the languages of the scriptures into our language has a lot to do with the actual language, but it also has a lot to do with the way that we use language now and so the way that we perceive certain phrases. So a phrase like, lead us not into temptation, means something different to us now than it would have meant to people who spoke the same language, English, that we speak 150, 200 years ago. And so I think this translation is more uh, indicative of what Jesus is saying for us here and now. Um, But none of the translations actually mean that we need to beg God not to tempt us. That's the most important thing uh, about the, the translation question. I think it's kind of a shame that the limitations of language have probably created that shape for some of us, that when we pray this, that image of the God who um, is always putting us in the impossible spot to, to constantly test our faithfulness by tempting us and see if we'll fail, uh, that that gets reinforced when we pray the Lord's Prayer. That's clearly not the heart of Jesus in teaching us to pray. Uh, and so what I want to suggest that that you look for in this phrase, um, as Jesus is telling us, pray this way, and then, and he's doing it even before he goes to the cross in real time. Uh, I think he's teaching us to see our relationship with the Father as being bound up in the work of the cross in this phrase. There is a sort of do not, please don't require us to carry the weight of sin and brokenness, but rescue us from it, from the evil in our hearts and the world, is the essence of what I think this phrase says. So now, as we pray for this, we acknowledge what he's already given. As people who live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, when we pray these words, we're remembering and we're acknowledging that that is true and that we can trust God to not require us to bear that weight on our own. Um, We're acknowledging what we've already been given, and praying these words is a way of sort of taking it in again. 
Um, it's also a way, I think, of receiving grace for whatever trials we do face because we rest in God's provision and in confidence that we won't be overcome by them, by our own sin, by the evil in the world, by our circumstances. The kingdom we've prayed for is coming, is the reminder. And the king is also our father who sees us, who knows us, and who gives us everything we need. Let's pray. Father, um, as the disciples asked Jesus, we ask you, teach us to pray. Teach us what it means for our lives to be in constant conversation with you, to be lived openly in front of you, so that we can speak freely with you and receive freely from you. And that our lives would be shaped by that conversation. And so these words that you've given us are a gift. Would you allow us to see them as the gift that they are and to embrace them, to receive them, and so pray them regularly, not as a cliche, not in a rote sort of way, but to really listen when you said, this is how you should pray, and so we pray these words. Will you pray them with me uh, one more time before we go tonight? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. That last phrase isn't in the Bible, so I didn't preach about it. It's a good phrase, uh, just not in the text. It got added centuries ago. There's nothing wrong with praying it when you pray the Lord's Prayer, of course. Uh, it's just not in the text, and I figured you were okay with me not talking another five or ten minutes. Um, so here's some questions for this week. How much power do the circumstances of my life have to dictate how I spend my time, energy, and money? How might this prayer reorder the tangible details of my days as I allow God's kingdom and his fatherly provision to assume its rightful place? If you have announcements, you can head on up. How freely can I pray verse 12, which is the verse about forgiveness? N.T. Wright says that refusing to give forgiveness is saying, I don't really believe the kingdom has arrived. I don't think the forgiveness of sins has actually occurred. What does my capacity to readily and freely forgive say about my own experience with my own experience with and belief in God's forgiveness? And then do I pray like Jesus teaches me to pray? When will I start?